I speak about that all the time, you know, that failure isn't fatal. I mean, you know, we, we, we fail all the time and it's actually a very necessary part of success. It's really just uh, an error in judgment and you learn from it. What's up, Zach Oates here, author, entrepreneur, and customer relationship guru. Welcome to Give an Ovation, growth strategies for restaurants and retailers, where we find industry leaders to share their secrets to grow your business. This podcast is sponsored by Ovation, the actionable guest feedback tool that works on or off premise and is easy, real time, and actually drives revenue. Learn more at OvationUp.com. Welcome to another edition of Give and Ovation, although this is a very special edition. Uh, I am really excited and honored to introduce Devin Harris. He's a three-time Olympian. And if you don't know Devin, I promise that you know of Devin because he is one of the founding members of the Jamaican bobsled team. Yes, that cool runnings Jamaican bobsled team. Uh, he's the author of Yes, I Can and Keep On Pushing. He's a motivational speaker. He's a TED speaker. He's the founder of the Keep On Pushing Foundation, which supports education of kids in disadvantaged communities. He's an amazing guy. Uh, and I am grateful to have you on our podcast, Give an Ovation, Devin. Hey, Zach. Thank you, man, for having me on. You know, hopefully I can earn an ovation. Thanks yeah. for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, fascinating story. I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about how you grew up. Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking that. I, so I grew up in Jamaica. Um, and I live in New York, and whenever I speak, I go, I, I'm from Jamaica, the really nice one, not the one in New York. And, uh, I, I think it's funny, but people from New York don't think it's funny. I have no idea why. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, some of you, uh, your viewers may, have, may see these ads on TV, come to Jamaica and feel all right, right? And the images you see are, you know, quite accurate, uh, accurate portrayal of Jamaica. There's another side though. I grew up in Olympic Gardens, which is not where you come to feel all right. It's a really uh, violent, impoverished uh, ghetto environment. And that's, that's, that's where I grew up, man. Um, you know, loved school. Uh, what did I love about school? I loved learning and I loved the fact that when I did well, I got, it, 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 that was reinforced. And, but maybe the reason why I love school so much is because I love to play. And that was where I had the freedom to really play. And that's where I discovered sports. And just, you know, although all of us grew up in a poor environment, uh, I, I, I found that with sports, it didn't matter what, what the worth of your pockets were. It's mm -hmm. what you had inside, the drive and the passion. And I'm like, yeah, let's bring it, uh, you know. So um, I, I really fell in love with sports and the, and the competition that, it, that, that you, you brought to the game and just how you're able to really express your drive and your desire to win and to be truly, you know, outstanding. And as I got to high school, I started running track. I started out playing soccer, but I ended up running track and not sprinting. I know you'd think that because I'm Jamaican, I'm a sprinter now. <laughs> Everybody sprints fast except me, Zach. I'm like, damn it, I want to win something, man. And so I started running 800 and 1500 meters. Then in 1979, which is when I started training seriously, I wouldn't say I discovered the Olympics. I knew about the Olympics prior to that, but run about I mean, you that. You grew time. up in Olympic Garden, right? I yeah, mean that's true. Although I didn't know about the Olympics, I became aware of the Olympics 
1976. I was still young. I'm eight years old, um, I think. Um, Donald Quarry at Jamaica had just won the 200 meters at the Olympics in Montreal, um, defying odds, because apparently if you're that short, you shouldn't be able to win uh, the mm -hmm. 200 meter race. So I was aware of the Olympics. I became aware that I could become an Olympian, is perhaps more accurate to say. When I am 15 and ABC Wide World of Sports had a series called Road to Moscow, and they were featuring Olympic athletes from around the world. And you know, when you think of Olympic athletes, you think of these superhuman beings. And in the series, I realized that they were very average and ordinary people, just like you and I. They just had extraordinary dreams and an equally extraordinary desire to make those dreams a reality. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I could become an Olympian. And so I started dreaming about doing that. Um, and of course, becoming an army officer as well, which was kind of the big dream that I had. And luckily enough, I was able to accomplish both. That is, that is just incredible how you were able to really get yourself out of that situation. Um, what do you think it was? Like, how, how were you able to lift yourself out of a situation of that, that dangerous, poverty-stricken community all the way up to the Olympic stage? I mean, that's, that's quite the journey. Yeah, you know, so one of the things I didn't speak about was my grandmother, and you can blame her for all of this, man. So <laughs> I spent my early years with her um, in rural Jamaica, and the thing I remember about her was she was just an amazing storyteller. And she, the stories that impacted me the most were the ones she spoke, told me about soldiers and the amazing feat they could perform and not get, get hurt. And, man, I didn't know if I could do it, but I wanted to do it. And that inspired me to want to join the Army. More importantly, though, her stories inspired me to want to go pursue results and achieve things that other people thought were incredibly difficult or, mm. or impossible. And that has just kind of stayed with me. So as I moved back to Kingston to live with my dad in Olympic Gardens, and it's tough and it's rough, and, and um, you look around and there's... So in your immediate environment, there doesn't seem to be much hope. But as you look out, like I speak all the time about looking, you know, literally casting my eyes onto the hills and seeing forest hills, this um, really upscale neighborhood with mansions. And it, it was so obvious that there were people not very far from me that were living well. And although it seemed like, a half a world away, nonetheless, that there was that slim possibility that I could aspire to that. That's incredible. So, that driven me. Yeah. so you've been involved in a lot of different philanthropic endeavors throughout your life, but the Keep On Pushing Foundation specifically focuses on education for kids in, in struggling communities. Why did you focus on education specifically? Because I'm one of those kids, man. Um, and, and look, I'm no rose scholar. I think I mentioned that I, I did okay in school and I did, it, I did, I did my work. Um, I, but I understood how important education was uh, as one of the keys to lift you out of an environment like that. And, and so back in 2006, I'm back in Jamaica and I visited the old neighborhood, went to my old elementary school. Speaking to the principal, I'm like, so what, what, what's, what's the biggest challenge you're having here? And it was that kids were coming to school hungry. Now we know the deal. If you are hungry, you can't learn. 
because you're distracted. If you don't learn, you don't get educated. If you don't get educated, then you've just significantly reduced the options that you have in life. And growing up in a neighborhood like that, you know, attending that very school, you know, in those same classroom, running around that same schoolyard, I understood the plight, the challenge that those kids had. I mean, as an army officer, I went back to the old neighborhood looking for the bad guys. And I didn't, but I also understood that not all of these kids were going to turn out to be bad guys. They had potential. I'm one of them. Yeah. And so I was driven because I so connected, so related to them to do what I could to help one, two, as many as I could, you know, make their way from Olympic Gardens to their Olympic Games as well. I, I love that. Now, speaking of the Olympic Games, you know, Cool Runnings, I, I understand that they they took several creative liberties, shall we call it. Um, it's, it's a story, but it's absolutely based on the true story. There were Americans who saw your uh, races that you did and uh, funded the team to go to the Olympics. Um, but you were, you were able to, you're actually credited in, you're in the credits of Cool Runnings as someone who actually helped out. You went on set. I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, those are the things that Hollywood movies are made of, man. Who could have thunk, as they would say, <laughs> that, you know, a kid growing up in a violent ghetto in, a, in the middle of Olympic Gardens, in the middle of Kingston, Jamaica, would have a movie made about him, right? Um, so yeah, we, we, we went to the Olympic Games and uh, one of the Americans who came up with the idea to start the team, George Fitch, after Calgary, he began shopping the idea around about a movie. And uh, we made several trips to New York, met with the writers and they took copious notes. Believe me, they took copious notes. I saw them, but then they wrote what they felt like. And you're, you're, you're kind to say they took creative liberties. Yes, it was very loosely based on the true story. We, um, it took about five years for them to actually start filming. And it was really, it's a cool thing, I have to say, to be on a Hollywood movie set. Um, really flattering um, to be on a Hollywood movie set, watching them film a movie about an important part of your life. And so, yeah, you know, my name ended up in the credits. So what, what was cool. what was probably one of the things that people don't know didn't actually happen? We didn't we didn't lift the sled um, for for starters. A sled weighs a four man sled weighs six hundred and fifty pounds. Um, there's just just and it's awkward. There's just no way it makes absolutely no logical sense to lift the thing. So we pushed <laughs> it across the finish line. Here's something that most people don't know happened. Um, and if it were in a movie, people go, come on, that's corny. That doesn't make sense. So the movie suggests that we trained as a four-man team for the entire time, but that's not true. We had a few runs in Lake Placid in January, but we're, we were not entered in the four-man race at the Olympics. It's a, so it's the second week of the Olympic Games, and we decided that we would enter so we can all win a medal. Um, it gets it's get, it gets more weird. Um, so Chris Stokes, uh, the guy on the back of the sled, um, he was not on the team at the start of the Olympics. He was on a track scholarship in Idaho. He came to Calgary to watch his brother Dudley, our driver, race. And we go, Chris, you're a sprinter, right? 
So in three days, three, count them, one, two, three days, we taught him everything we knew about pushing a bobsled. I gave up my spot on the back. Yeah, I gave up my spot on the back because it was really hard for him to get over the side. And at the end of the week, we pushed the seventh fastest start time. Now, you put that in a movie and people go, that does not make sense. Fact, my friend, is stranger than fiction. That is... So you're telling me that one of the members of the team in 1988, is this the 88 team? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Had three days to go from what, you know, never having done it. From spectator, seeing a bobsled for the first time. To the seventh. He was in a Olympic race a week after he saw bobsledding. You are kidding me. No, would you have believed that if you saw that in a movie? No, no, no exactly. absolutely not. It happened. That's exactly how it happened. Exactly how it happened. Chris that started training at the start of the week. I taught him everything I knew about pushing a sled. I gave up my spot on the side so he could get in the back. <laughs> Boom. So, so they probably so they left it out of the movie because it was it was too unbelievable, huh? Too bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, oh my gosh. I, I, I get it. I get it. I would not believe it myself, but I was so, there. So did you but I was there? Yeah. <laughs> so you you went so how did that work out? Because were you originally not gonna do the four-man bobsled team? Or it's kind of uh so you know we started out our team we were intended to be two two-man teams with a possibility of doing four-man. Uh-huh. And then the guy who was my original driver, he exited the program before we even got to the Olympic Games. So we ended up, we were reduced to one two-man. We had two, two other athletes there with us, actually. Um, one, Freddie Powell, who fancied himself more as a reggae singer than a bobsledder. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 like, that, that was his thing, man. I mean, he was a reggae, reggae No matter where we went, he had to find an opportunity to sing. And it wasn't even a regular song he sang. He sang a song called White A Shade Of Pale. Never heard of it before. Um, and then Caswell Allen, you know, he was just kind of there having fun. So we recruited Chris that week and entered the, the race. So I didn't realize that you can, you know, you could sign up that late. No, you can't. Oh, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> or you shouldn't. I don't, I don't know the details. I honestly don't know the details, but usually you can't. I really, usually you couldn't. But you know, I hear that promises of Jamaican vacation and Jamaican rum were made. Uh, <laughs> don't quote me on that. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But that, that's what I've heard through the grapevine. Well, um, what's, what's interesting, though, is word, okay. that would have been impossible. It could never happen. Yeah. Because, you know, that was the 88 Olympics was also Eddie the Eagle. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. So that was yeah. that was a very iconic uh, Olympic Games. I mean, just incredible. There were some uh, amazing stories. There was there was us, of course, Eddie the Eagle, um, Dan Jansen, the, the speed skater, the um, the Battle of the Carmens, which was uh, Katarina Witt from the former East German, Germany and Debbie Thomas, the black. American figure skater. Um, so yeah, there are some pretty cool stories swirling around the Olympics. And and what an incredible story that you actually not just went 
in 88, but you went two more times. Yeah, you know, we, we didn't like the way things ended in 88, man. We crashed. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Crash in 88. You you the the music doesn't come on, you don't pick up the bobsled, it, does, it doesn't happen like it does in the movies. But what did happen? How did you decide to you know to keep on going after that crash? I mean, wasn't wasn't that embarrassing? Like, talk to us about that. Yeah, that was embarrassing. I remember we were heading down the track and the next thing I knew we were over. And I remember saying exactly that to myself. Wow, we're over. That's embarrassing. Because we just failed in front of the entire world, Zach. I mean. And there were so many people counting on you guys. You were the darling story of, you know, of the Olympics. And then, you know, to add insult to injury, our in crashing, we gave credence to the people who felt we didn't belong. Mm. Um, you know, so it was uh, a lot. I mean, it feels like forever uh, when you're in a crash um, and, and you have all that time to be to try and process what this means. And, you know, and in addition to um, embarrassing ourselves and giving credence to our naysayers, we, in our mind, had embarrassed an entire nation. I mean, we're from a country that's, that's been nurtured on Olympic excellence. And here are the, these four fools at the Olympic Games crashing and embarrassing the nation. It's a heavy burden to, to bear on your shoulders, right? And um, so we eventually came to a stop. And we, I remember we were walking up the breaking stretch. I was leading the group. And the people just started to cheer. Hmm. And, and said, we love you. And you know, I remember one guy reached over to the railings and shook my hand. I shook his hand. And, um, and then I was shaking every other hand. And people were just so um, receptive, so supportive of us, so appreciative of the, the effort. And, and the country that we feared we, we had let down and would ridicule us really honored us. People were so proud um, I mean, the government made stamps with our faces on it, man. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, really, you know? <laughs> and so what, what did you learn from that crash? Uh, I speak about that all the time, you know, that failure isn't fatal. I mean, you know, we, we, we fail all the time, and it's actually a very necessary part of success. And it's kind of funny because when I'm doing my live um, presentations, I'll ask people to put their hand up if they've ever failed. And then I'm like, oh, if you've ever failed, um, if you've ever felt like a loser, keep your hand up. You know, and, and, and my hand is up. I'm like, if you ever failed and felt like a loser on international TV, keep your hand up. Right? I'm, like, I'm like, I'm the only one. <laughs> but I'm like, hey, but it does it demonstrate that failure isn't fatal. It's really just uh, an error in judgment and you learn from it. And that's what we did. We, we learned from it. You, you could argue that in pure sports term, it was a failure. We didn't win. But if you think about the journey and the tremendous progress that we made uh, to the point where we could recruit a guy and in three days put him on a sled and push the seventh fastest start time and in the process inspire people around the world. That sounds like tremendous success to me. So okay. that's how I took the process, oh, the process of failure. And not just around the world, but around the world for decades. I mean, yeah. still to this day, um, even people that, I, I was just talking to one of our interns 
And she was like, I love Cool Runnings. Like everyone knows your story. Um, to wrap things up, I would love to ask you, Devin, um, you know, we are working with a lot of restaurants and there are not just with in the restaurant community, but all around 2020 has been a rough year for a lot of people. What advice would you have for people who are struggling? Maybe they got furloughed, laid off. Maybe their business closed. Maybe their restaurant is struggling. Maybe they don't know what to do next. Um, what, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, Zach, it's a really tough year, man. I mean, I think we're all grateful that it's coming to an end. Um, yeah. You know, and, and so, yeah, we, we find ourselves swirling around in the sea of uncertainty and there, there really doesn't feel like there's an end uh, anywhere near. And, you know, I talk all the time about the fact that you have to keep on pushing. And so it begs the question, how the hell do you keep on pushing when you can't even see the end? Um, and if I could borrow a, a, a phrase from Stephen Covey, you kind of have to begin with the end in mind. And by that, I mean, you have to create an image in your mind of what you want. Because guess what? This too will end. It feels like it's going to be forever, but we will come to an end. How are you preparing yourself? What would you like your life to be like when this ends? You have to keep that in your mind all the time so that you can find a way, I don't know how, quite frankly, to work towards it. But if you have it in your mind, you'll figure a way. And I think about you know, navigating this uncertainty, Zach, in terms of what happens to, to me for me during a bobsled run. Every now and again, you'll hit a corner and you didn't get on right and you're in trouble, right? You're kind of waving up and down. And the intuitively you want to hold on to the reins of the sled and manhandle it and force it to go where you want it to go, where you think you should be. Kind of like how we're in this sea of uncertainty and we want to have control of everything and put it in place. Well, in my sport, when you try to control the sled, you make things worse. You compound the problem. Hmm. And it's counterintuitive to kind of sit there and, you know, I get really focused. My senses get really heightened and I have to learn to breathe, man, and just kind of go with the flow and waiting for the right time to pick my spot to act. And that's, that's really hard to do. Your business is failing. You don't know how you're going to make payroll and pay the mortgage and all that stuff. You, you, if you really focus and, and use all of your energies to try and control all of these things that you have no control over, you're going to make yourself um, more frustrated, mm. maybe even depressed, um, because you can't control it. You just cannot. And so the thing is not to throw your hands in the air, not to settle, but to just recognize that, yeah, you're in rough waters now and you have to conserve your energy. You have to breathe and wait and wait. Thinking about the end, when I'm on that corner, all I'm picturing is the exit and where I need to be so I can make my decisive move to get off the corner. And that's what you have to do. That's what all of us have to do in this um, crazy time that we live in. 
Wow. Devin, um, here are my takeaways from today. One, just as in sports and business, it's not about what you got in your pockets necessarily, but it's about having that drive to, to make your dreams a reality. Two, education is key to level up your life uh, in all aspects from the Olympic Gardens in Kingston, Jamaica, to running your own business. It's all about education, bettering yourself. Mm -hmm. Three, truth is sometimes a lot more interesting than fiction. (laughs) Four, four, failure isn't fatal. I love that. You know, crashes, it's not catastrophe. You know, you you can get up uh, again. I love that. And then five, create a vision of what you want your life to be, your business to be, and keep on pushing to get there. And you got to breathe going through it, but you can get there. There is an end in mind. Um, so, Devin, how do people find you, follow you? Tell me about your your podcast and things like that. Oh, yeah, man. Thank you for that, uh, Zach. And I, I claim that I'm the easiest guy in the world to find. Um, so my name, DevonHarris.com. That's my website, DevonHarris.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on uh, Facebook. I'm the guy in the Jamaican bobsled uniform. Or my page is uh, Keep On Pushing with Devon Harris, go figure. Or um, Instagram or Twitter, my handle is Keep On Pushing 88. Um, My podcast, you can find on YouTube, Keep On Pushing Always. So youtube.com slash Keep On Pushing Always. Looking forward to seeing you there. Devin, for being such an inspiration the world over and for bringing such a motivational spirit to uh, give an ovation. Today's ovation goes to you. Thank you so much for joining us. It was an honor to chat with you. Man, it's great to be here with you as well. Thanks again for having me on. Glad you're with us today and thank you. Thank you to the risk takers, the troublemakers, the crazies who are keeping this world clothed and fed. You're the ones who deserve an ovation. Again, this podcast was sponsored by Ovation. To see how we can help you grow your business, go to OvationUp.com. Don't forget to subscribe. And as always, remember to give someone in your life an ovation today.